Club.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. everybody, and welcome back to MCU.html, the only show where me and my husband argue about the validity of the Marvel Cinematic Universe's internal continuity. Uh, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And by now, everyone here has done their homework and watched Iron Man. But first, a little bit about us. Hey, Kevo, how you doing? Pretty okay. How about yourself? I'm doing great, because I'm here with you. So, this is our first real show, the two of us. Yeah. I'm on Now and Again with Chris, and you shout smarter than us in the background all the time. Uh. And uh, we have X's for Podcast, super fun with Jonah and Kyle, and that's going great. And you and I cover Captain Britain together, which we are slowly slogging through. It, it's, it's, it's fun. That's a word for it. But here we're going to discuss the Marvel Cinematic Universe, something that we enjoy very much. And it's really interesting because I remember early on in our relationship trying to bring you into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, unsure how you'd feel about it. And ultimately, you turned into just as big a fan of the MCU as I've ever been of the Marvel Comic Universe. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experiences as a fan? Well, you know, I had the Fox Kids afternoon cartoon show background in Marvel Comics that a lot of 90s kids had. But I was never really a comic person growing up. It wasn't really until I met this wonderful man over here that I really started to get versed in that sort of lore. But I think one of the things that drew me to the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, as someone with ADD, it's hard for me to sit down and read a comic book sometimes, but being able to see those sorts of heroes be so accurately translated to the screen and those sort of action-adventure stories as, like I said, a 90s kid who grew up on Power Rangers and Ninja Turtles. You know, it it, it feels like grown-up version of that, and it's a lot of fun, and it's been a lot of fun to watch unfold over the last decade. And it's been amazing to get to share that with you. Now, let's get a little bit more into what we're here to discuss. Kevo, I believe you've taken some pretty extensive notes about the cast and crew of Iron Man. And I know we're going to discuss the cast extensively as we discuss the film, but would you give us a little bit more information about the behind the scenes going on that created the movie? Yeah, you know, one of the things to consider about film as an art form, especially at this level, is that it is a hugely collaborative process. So it's important to consider the people who are in control of a project like this and their own influences, and sometimes even what they later become. The composer for this first film of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Raman Jwali, later went on to become the composer for Game of Thrones and Westworld on HBO. And that's 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 so significant because that means this guy has been shaping action and adventure for better than a decade in a, in a humongously influential way. And I have to wonder then if his common denominator is something that has helped these franchises be so successful, whether people realize directly or not. Sort of the way so many themes and uh, compositions from the 1980s were done by John Williams 
and it, they're such humongous pieces of score, and they're so influential, and they all come to mind so easily. Kevo, can you? It's Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Superman, uh, Harry Potter. Did you say Jaws? Oh, I didn't say Jaws. Yeah, Indiana Jones. I think you did say, but it's worth repeating. Yeah. Yeah, so it's no surprise that the guy who composed the score for the first Iron Man film is the person who came up with the iconic Game of Thrones theme. Uh, I definitely think you had an excellent point about them going for a very specific tone for this first film. And I think that also speaks to the choice of cinematographer in Matthew Libatique, who was a frequent collaborator with Darren Aronofsky, uh, like in Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, Black Swan. They were definitely going for a serious tone for this superhero film. It, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to do this research, though, because you come across information like that and you say, yeah, that makes sense. But then you also see things on a person's resume like how they worked on this year's A Star is Born or 2001's Josie and the Pussycats and you say that that's random. Although it also says that he went on to work on Venom. Yeah, in fact, uh, this cinematographer uh, will return for Iron Man 2 and worked with Jon Favreau on Cowboys and Aliens in 2011, but that's about it for this person's resume, uh, apart from the Darren Aronofsky collaborations. So this guy was the cinematographer on the movie that helped transition Marvel away from 90s movies and then was the cinematographer on the movie that is the most 90s comic book movie about a Marvel character since the 90s. Yeah, basically. So what about the other people? I, you know, we could talk about Jon Favreau, who's just so dreamy. Jon Favreau is so dreamy, and I would like to remind everyone once again that, to me, he will always be Pete from Friends, one of my favorite Monica love interests. Absolutely. I, I root for Pete. Um, I think I think I'm happy for him, though, that he got away because those people are, are super neurotic and uh, toxic. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, do you have any other notes about the creative team? Uh, well, everyone usually talks about the directors a lot, but as a writer myself, I always look to that uh, area of the credits. Something f- to take note of first for those of you who aren't as in the know about how uh, credits go in the industry. The difference between an ampersand between a pair of names and the A-N-D is that an ampersand denotes a writing partnership where the two writers put in a collaborative effort on a script or a draft. Uh, so when you see that a film such as Iron Man has four names, two ampersands, and an A-N-D, it's because this was actually written by two different pairs of writers. Uh, the first people who took a pass at this script, Mark Fergus and Hawk Otsby, are best known for working on Children of Men, which was nominated for an Oscar. They're basically known for a lot of adaptations. They adapted the comic book Cowboys and Aliens with John Favreau in 2011. They worked with Guy Pierce on a film called First Snow in 2006. They developed a television show on sci-fi, but uh, not really a lot of breakout hits I have seen. After them, the script was taken a pass on by a collaborative pair, Art Markham and Matt Holloway. This was their first real credit that was in tandem with a script for a 2008 reboot of the Punisher franchise, which was not a sequel to the Tom Jane film. And it was a, a, a really big flop. Uh, and then they didn't work again until 2017. 
when they wrote Transformers The Last Night, which also starred Anthony Hopkins uh, of the Thor franchise, which is funny because the Punisher from their 2008 film was played by Ray Stevenson, a.k.a. Volstagg of the Thor franchise, the only of the uh, Warriors 3 to appear in all three Thor th- films. All three, all four, all, all three, all f- yeah, I can't do it. I can't all do three, it. All three, four, all three. I've it never hurts. I, it hurts. I've never heard it said that way before, but yeah, now I can't. It's it's awful. All three Thor films. <laughs> All three Thor films. <laughs> yeah, so I'm never gonna unhear that. So the thing I think I took away the most from seeing who wrote the script for Iron Man and seeing that they uh, aren't the hugest of names, I believe that that reflects Marvel wasn't really sure about. Iron Man being the success that it was going to be. In doing this research, I saw a lot of 2008 articles where they were talking about what a risk this was and how no one knew if it was going to pay off. But pay off it did and gave us the largest film franchise of all time. Yeah. It breathed new life into Marvel Comics and created a new generation of superheroes for fans to love. And I guess without further ado, let's talk a little bit more about Iron Man. Sounds like fun. The first thing I noticed right off the bat is they want you to know that Tony Stark is the coolest guy in the room from the very second he gets on the screen. Yeah, uh, we don't see Tony Stark's face first. We see his hand holding a drink. Absolutely, and I think one of the things about that is he's he's meant to be so passionate and fun and powerful from the moment he gets on the screen. This way, when it's broken, we have a sense of how broken he becomes. They have to start with... Tony Stark being the coolest guy in the room so that when he's humbled, you believe he's broken. Yeah, they show how uh, friendly and affable he is with everyone around him, basically. That's what the whole first 15 minutes of the film is, is how charming Tony Stark is and how everyone loves him. So that when we finally get to the extended scenes of his kidnapping and capture, uh, it really shows how out of his depth he is. I agree. I think one of the things that I noticed the most is how so much of the film is about people who are supposed to be telling Tony no, mostly and kind of ultimately capitulating on most of the things Tony wants because they accept that Tony probably does know better, but that's going to become a theme that we're going to discuss later on, people questioning Tony and his decisions in and out of the suit. But right away, we're introduced to Tony's cavalcade of characters. We meet Rhodey, Stain, Pepper... We also meet his first unfortunate uh, tryst. Great. I like that word tryst because genuinely I don't believe that they really played up the womanizer that Tony Stark could be portrayed as in this film. I think they went kind of easy on the womanizing using this one character as a catch-all and a couple of lines here and there. And actually, can we talk about that couple of lines for a second? Uh, yeah, I have extensive notes on that couple of lines. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that's great about having a partner like Kevo, somebody who knows me so well, so inside and out, is that I can rely on saying a couple of lines, and I know he's going to know what I'm talking about. Kevo, would you mind stepping in and talking a little bit about those lines in the bigger context we like to discuss them in? Absolutely. Uh, Two words that you're going to get very tired of hearing in my voice are the words queer visibility, which are something, uh, it's something that's very important to me as a queer person myself. And Tony Stark is a character that I've frequently pointed to as someone who is very visibly heterosexual. And what I mean by that is, it's almost a character trait of his. As I was going through watching this film, I was taking very particular note 
uh, of scenes in which Tony Stark's heterosexual energy is enormously present and important and in your face. He doesn't just have this tryst with the uh, recurring MCU reporter Christine Everhart at the beginning of this film, but he flirts with women. He mentions women that he has slept with. In his first 14 minutes of screen time, his heterosexuality comes up on average every other minute. It's, it's, it's a lot. It's not just a lot. It's almost oppressive. It is oppressively heterosexual. And by that I mean it so defines him. Early on, Tony Stark is this larger-than-life, ego-driven, magical creature almost. He's sort of like a hyper-masculine, uber-sexual My Little Pony. (laughs) Um, And um, Tony is magic. So, okay, we're hitting some great stuff, but I want to back up a moment. I know we're going to keep talking about Tony and the other major characters that appear throughout the film, but let's talk about a character who only appears in three major locations, the beginning, the turning point, and the end. Christine. Let's talk about the MCU's go-to reporter. Christine Everhart, played by Leslie Bibb of the WB's Popular. She is one of those actresses that every time she pops up, I'm like, hey, it's that lady. Um, Well, from the get, this interaction with that character is a little bit uncomfortable with the way Happy instinctively knows to tell Tony that she is cute and worth turning around for. Uh, Tony tells her that he wants to show her what he does before bedtime firsthand. He calls her honey. And when she asks if he's ever lost any hour of sleep in his life, uh, in a conversation about him selling weapons, he replies, I'm prepared to lose a few with you. And we smash cut to them boinking. I think it's even more than that. They're trying so hard to create this unstoppable image of Tony Stark. They want Tony Stark to be this hyper-idealized I, I can't even explain it. He is meant to be, he's entitled be, by birth. He is brilliant. He is very handsome. He's charismatic. He has everything going for him. We should not root for him. We should find him irritating. But it's Robert Downey Jr. playing this character so well that we actually root for this very sexist scene, uh, or at least we used to. I think time has aged this scene very poorly. And I think a lot of what he says is a little bit gross, especially as that's his first interaction with a woman in the film. I don't think that sets a very nice tone for Tony Stark, but that is part of his journey. He sucked at first. Yeah, and it's interesting the things that I feel have aged poorly and have not. Uh, We come to a scene where he's in his private jet with Rhodey and the strippers... uh, Ooh, I gave it away. I was going to... The flight attendants turn into strippers. I was going to set that up better, but I might as well just flat out say it. You all watched the movie. Absolutely. Uh, You know, do we have... I I think I do have a little bit more on Christine. I was about to say, do we have more on Christine? But I do have a little bit more on Christine. I, I really don't like one of her lines. I think Christine is given these very aggressively passionate lines that I don't think sound very natural. At that point in the confrontation where she first shows up, she says to Tony, how does he feel about his nickname, the Merchant of Death? And I just want to be like, oh my God. You were such a lip major in college. It was just so, you know what? They're boinking at the end of the scene and she boinked him on the head right there. It was just so over the top. And that is something that does occasionally come up throughout this movie. There are frequently lines in this film where I'm just like, oh my God, what? No, don't say that. Particularly out of Obadiah's mouth. Jeff Bridges, talented guy, larger than life, and the first MCU villain. But 
we will get to the number of times where Jeff Bridges' delivery and or dialogue makes me go, no, 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 no. You're not in the same movie as everybody else, pal. He literally sounds like he's in a different film sometimes. Well, and let's uh, bring up one of our favorite points about this film right off the bat then. The fact that a lot of it was improvised as they went along. From what I read uh, going over uh, information before the podcast, it's that they would take the script that they were given, they would sit around with it in the morning and do a read and talk about what they felt sounded natural, what they thought could use uh, some tweaking, and they would use the script more as a foundation than uh, an actual definitive blueprint. And a lot of the things that came out of Robert Downey Jr.'s mouth were completely improv Which evidently Jeff Bridges hated, and that does really translate into his performance. But let's talk Stain for a minute. You've all seen the movie, so no spoilers here. Stain is the bad guy. What? I think he is executed a bit better than a lot of early Marvel villains who come off very two-dimensional, screamy-screamy kill-kill. Okay. I think on second and third and whatever watch number this is for me, gosh, I think this must be like my 10th watch of Iron Man at this point because, you know, I love marathoning the Marvel Cinematic Universe way too much. But as my first time taking serious notes, this was the first time that I actually saw some amount of characterization in Stain. I noticed that there was definitely a lot of trying to set it up as the world was pitting Stain against Tony and Stain resisting the dark pull. There's the Time Magazine cover at the awards banquet, which Tony is being honored with an award. He doesn't show up to receive it because he's out gambling. And instead, Stain goes up to accept the award on behalf of the son of his former business partner who usurped his rightful place, as I'm sure Stain believed, in the company. We see that on the magazine cover, Stain kind of has like an over-the-shoulder disdainful eye at Tony. But then later on, At the press conference, once Tony's returned, we see him kneeling next to Tony with an affectionate hand on his shoulder, which is a stark contrast, ha, stark, which is a stark contrast to the image that the media is trying to portray, almost as if they want us to believe that maybe Stain isn't evil, despite the media's effort to make us believe in-universe that he should have a rivalry with Tony. Yeah, they definitely did a lot of interesting things with us not being able to tell who's entirely on Tony's side in this film. By contrast of that interaction with Stain, there are a lot of moments with Tony Stark's best friend, Rhodey, where we're not really sure if Rhodey is on Tony's side. He gets really mad at Tony for no longer being in the weapons manufacturing business, which, frankly, us as the audience should probably be rooting against that opinion from Rhodey. Uh, so we're not sure if Ru- if Rhodey is going to help him as Iron Man or be his villain as Iron Man. And I think the ultimate reveal of him being more on Tony's side than anything else, is a nice contrast from the betrayal of Stain. And I think that Rhodey does serve a really important purpose in this movie. Rhodey is one of those characters who, if you love Iron Man, you you gotta love Rhodey. He is Iron Man's best friend. He is such a strong, powerful character on his own. He's been able to hold his own series multiple times in multiple decades. He's not just anybody that puts on the suit. He's Rhodey. And that's a really significant character. And he's been played by two very significant award-winning actors. While Terrence Howard did not return for subsequent performances of Rhodey, The character goes on to be played by Don Cheadle of the Golden Palace fame, Mm -hmm. and he also does a phenomenal job. Now, I personally think that Terrence Howard is unbelievably easy on the eyes, and those eyes. And I think that uh, Don Cheadle is also a phenomenal actor. He plays it with such life and such passion, and it takes a big, big actor to be able to stand up next to Robert Downey Jr. on a stage and not 
and not shy away. And both of them do a knockout of the park job. I'm just sad that we don't get more Terrence Howard, but I'm super happy for the Don Cheadle that we do get. Yeah, I definitely uh, enjoyed Terrence Howard uh, watching this film again more than I remembered. But I am certainly more a fan of the Don Cheadle interpretation of the character. There's this underlying, I want to say, I don't want to say disdain, but there's this underlying animosity that Terrence Howard plays toward Tony that Don Cheadle replaces with affection and I greatly appreciate that more. I almost could read that Rhodey's, that Terrence Howard's Rhodey is jealous of Tony sometimes, where Don Cheadle only ever just seems exhausted of Tony. And that's an enormous difference in how he feels about the character. I like that interpretation and that, that specific read. I do think they both play a very good best friend. But I do believe they play the best friend, and there's no choice now but to discuss... The most important person in Tony Stark's life. Tony Stark, I mean Pepper Potts. (laughs) Pepper Potts is a very unusual thing because it's a time where I enjoy a Gwyneth Paltrow character. (laughs) And I think Gwyneth Paltrow does an incredible job in Seven. I think she does an incredible job in a number of things I've seen her in. Glee. I I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not attacking Gwyneth Paltrow. I do have opinions on Goop, but... But Pepper Potts is amazing. Pepper Potts is amazing. And I think Gwyneth Paltrow plays this character better than any hundred people play a hundred other characters. I think she just knocks this one out of the park. I think the person for whom it was hardest to stand toe-to-toe with Robert Downey Jr. as this larger-than-life figure, I think the person who had to have had the hardest time was Gwyneth Paltrow, because so many people are automatically looking for the woman to be weak in a superhero movie. And it's not something I ever feel from Gwyneth Paltrow's Pepper Potts, whether she's in mortal peril or she is simply conversating with Tony Stark. Just having a good time with him, yeah. She definitely captures all of his energy, and she throws it right back at him. Though, I think there is one character that we need to give a little bit of credit to who doesn't appear very much, Happy Hogan, played by Jon Favreau. He gave himself a small part in the movie, and I'm very grateful for it because I love looking at him. But I do think that Happy kind of fades away in this film. He's almost invisible. If it wasn't for the fact that Happy becomes such a bigger character in two, three, and now the Spider-Verse, uh, you, he, he could almost be any ba- background bodyguard. I agree. And speaking of bodyguards, oh man, did Tony need a better bodyguard? Once the film finally catches up to the beginning and we get to the end media res portion that we started on, we discover that Tony was in the desert to test his new Jericho missile when he was taken. That introduces us to a number of characters. We meet the Ten Rings, who are the setup villain for the film, but more importantly, we meet Yin Sen. We get a complicated sequence where Tony is in and out of consciousness being operated on. We're not really sure the details or the particulars, but when he comes to, he's with another prisoner in a small cell. Yin Sen is what we would call a positive problematic character in that we like him. He's a great character who does wonderful things for the plot. He is not a negative stereotype in any way, but he is unfortunately probably one of the only minorities in the entire film. This film has so little ethnic diversity. I very much love that Rhodey is a strong, powerful lead. 
uh, or at least secondary lead. But there is so little diversity in this cast. Uh, there's one major woman who is not exclusively a sexual object, and even then she is still a yeah. sexual object. Uh, Rhodey represents the only, I would say, the only named character of color. Yeah, especially as far as major uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe characters go. So far, when we get to Tony uh, in his cell meeting Yin Sen, we have met Tony, Rhodey, Happy, Christine Everhart, and Pepper Potts. So this is the next major character that we are meeting, and he is a person of color who dies to further a white savior story. It's not great. It's not great at all, but he, he... I'm at least grateful for a movie that could be misread as unfortunately racist. I think, you know what? I want to talk about it for a minute. Okay. The Ten Rings are the setup villain in this, and by that I mean they're the people that you think are going to be the villain of the entire film. They're ultimately dispatched by Tony and later Stane, killing his own former partners yeah. in order to gain the access to the former Iron Man suit that Tony's about to construct in our narrative. But for the first 80 minutes of this film, you think that the Ten Rings are going to be the ultimate villain. And when we meet the Ten Rings, they're a stand-in for the Mandarin. The Mandarin, for those of you who don't know, is a famous Iron Man villain from the comics. He is a very offensive Asian stereotype. He has ten rings of power. I don't really... I don't know how people thought they... I don't. I, I mean, when they cover the Mandarin in Iron Man 3, it's just about the best case scenario. <laughs> the Iron Man villain gallery is not super strong. And unfortunately, uh, the ones that are are deeply problematic and troubling. So the Ten Rings are a Middle Eastern group that they say speak so many different languages, so at least they're not saying it's one singular group. They do even say Russian and Hungarian. And they go out of their way to make a separation between the people of Afghanistan and the Ten Rings as a terrorist organization, which I at least appreciated. They made it very clear that these people were also victims of the Ten Rings. But it is important to note that the Ten Rings are treated as general brown bad guys. Yes. They don't have names or characters. They are just big brown bad guy. And I think that is deeply troubling. Absolutely. Especially for its era, we look to superhero films to show a moral rightitude, at least at some points we kind of hope we can. Essentially, we can with Captain America, but, you know, Thor's all about the fight and the mead. But anyway, Ten Rings, sort of generic and ultimately problematic and implicitly racist by being general brown bad guys. Don't like it, don't care for it. But back to Yinsen, who is at least a positive character. Yeah. I regret that we don't get more from this character because I do think that this character is a tremendous addition to the story. He plays against Tony Stark very well. He has no time for Tony's bullshit. He calls him out on the things he knows about him and the time he met him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. He is unwilling to flinch in the face of this man's fame. He is giving it to Tony just as honestly and real as his captors are. While his captors are torturing him, Yinsen is not torturing him. He is equally trapped. He's And he's not impressed by Tony Stark. It would have been interesting to see where something from this character could have gone eventually, but unfortunately not. While his sacrifice is unfortunate, I do think he provides a lot to the film and gives more than just a foil for Tony to play against, he gives us someone who is on Tony's level. The film is going to continue to make an obsessive deal about what Tony Stark was able to do in the desert with a box of scraps, (laughs) which is really important because 
Ultimately, when Tony comes home and is rescued, he's able to assemble the Iron Man suit in what seems like a matter of days. It's unbelievable how quickly Tony is going to progress through the process of becoming a superhero, especially on the design element. Even with all of his fantastic technology at his disposal, it's sort of unbelievable if he wasn't able to do what he's able to do in the desert, that he would be able to create Iron Man as quickly as he does. The fact of the matter is, though, he couldn't have done it without Jensen, and that is an important distinction here. Tony Stark does get a lot of the credit for what he was able to do in the desert with a box of scraps i really have trouble letting this line go you guys there's also a line we're going to assassinate at the end of the film but that's not the point of the story oh yeah it's one of your favorites oh my god i literally bring it up it's ironic isn't it kevy so um anyway i think it's important to remember that yinsen is a character who is not given the respect he deserves. He is capable of standing toe-to-toe with Tony Stark, and he is capable of helping build the arc reactor suit that powers Tony's escape. Let's talk for a minute about that giant clunky Iron Man suit, though. It's an iconic image, the very big kind of uh, Iron Giant feeble suit. And it takes about 36 minutes of the film for it to finally appear. The first third of this entire... No. Yeah, third. Third is correct. The first third of this entire film is Iron Suitless. And not even just Iron Suitless. It's superhero-less. It's superhero and supervillain-less. There is the military aspect, which it makes you think that this is in many ways sort of a military war film. But it's ultimately not a military war film. It is a superhero film with military influence. Those military influences will continue in the Marvel Universe in one way or another. Especially in Iron Man. But ultimately, at this point, the military influence is seen as a negative thing in the Marvel Universe. Oftentimes, the government standing in the way of or impeding the success of the superheroes based on preconceived notions of what laws should apply to supernatural beings. I want to go on, though, to say, once Tony does get that iron suit going, it is pretty fucking cool. I think there's a couple of images that are kind of like bonk and kind of fall flat for me, especially with the early special effects and some of the just standing there rocket launcher. But I think so much of that energy is amazing. It really conveys a story. And I think it's the first time that I've become really aware that this film acts as a comic book arc. We get an issue of the setup where we see Tony kidnapped and then at the end we he is ultimately kidnapped. Then the second issue where he's being tortured and he starts to build the suit. The third issue where he breaks free in the suit and then rockets to his safety. But of course not before the death of the incredible Yensen who without whom he could have never done this. Ultimately finding out that Yensen lied to Tony misled him into believing that he thought that he would survive too because he knew that Tony wouldn't let him die. He felt it was more important that the genius of Tony Stark survive because he had so much to live for. He would give himself enough of a fight to get out of here without believing in someone else. Yin Sen could never have gotten someone out. I think it's an interesting story they're trying to tell. It's an interesting dynamic they're trying to create. I do think it's important to always remember that somebody else helped Tony create the first suit And I think that brings us to the return home. Yeah, that pushes us, you know, going by your terminology there into the next arc of the film, which is uh, Tony's homecoming and trying to rebrand himself. You know, one of the things that was so important to Favreau when making Iron Man as a film was to show someone whose superhero origin, while changing things about them, didn't change them completely as a man. And that's one of the things that drew him to Robert Downey Jr., who at this time was himself going through a bit of a rebranding period after an enormous downswing. 
and it's something that really shines through in the character. I completely agree. His humanity is the most important part of Tony Stark, and it's the defining element of Tony Stark's character. He doesn't ask Yen Sin's name for 10 minutes of screen time. That means it must have been more than that, especially because they're trapped together for what we discover is three months. Tony Stark that does that is not the Tony Stark at the end of this film. And I think that's the kind of humanity that John Favreau needed Robert Downey Jr. to channel, to bring this complicated character to life. And I think ultimately it paid off with one of the most recognizable characters of the last 30 or 40 years. Which is uh, one of the things that drew Robert Downey Jr. to the character as well, wanting to play this Johnny Depp's Captain Jack Sparrow type character to become this icon. And, uh, you know, Tony Stark's homecoming, the scene uh, with the press conference where he tells everybody to sit down, that was completely improvised. And even though it required relighting the entire scene, John Favreau loved it. He thought that was so Tony Stark. And it was really a matter of, trusting each other uh, to build this character. I love how we're reading into this sort of like, we're totally projecting this. It was a magical time collaborative process. It was like that one amazing summer you had or that incredible time in that dorm room or that internship experience. And, you know, it bonds you for life. Well, and I think that actually is proven to be the case in some ways. Think about the selfie that uh, circulated after Spider-Man Homecoming of Gwyneth Paltrow and Robert Downey Jr. and John Favreau, who've been in this film franchise since the beginning together. The people who make these movies love making these movies, and that always shines through the most in these movies. So I super like that you're playing into my arc and like issue concept here because this is where the story takes a massive turn. While the arc reactor had been introduced in the first act of the film where we see him create the mini arc reactor to power his heart to keep him alive, this is the point at which it becomes a major focus of the plot. The arc reactor goes on to dominate the story going forward. It's even the reason I keep screaming a box of scraps. And not just in this film, it's worth noting that the Arc Reactor is a continued featured part of the Iron Man franchise and even brought up in Avengers in 2012. It's almost as if Iron Man has this weird built-in way to continuously reference his origin. I can't imagine any other superhero having that. Like, if Bruce's parents have to die every film or something... Yeah, it's not like he talks about it all the time. We all know it happened, but he doesn't, like, carry a necklace with them with their picture around his neck. This is why I do this. I'm the Batman, and these are my parents' bones. And, like, it's oh nothing God. like that at all. There's no, there's no Juan Perón keeping his first wife in the dining room. Oh, Lord. So, and we start to see here more seeds of the potentiality of Stain being the villain when he refers to the arc reactor technology as something they did to shut up the hippies. And it's important that when we talk about that, okay, yeah, I love that you said this because I noticed something phenomenal in the stain scene later on where he decides he has to go talk to his associates in Gomero, the Ten Rings. I noticed something. He has a Buddha in his apartment. Does he? Yeah, he's like, he's this super cool and he's got these young women. Like, I think he thinks of himself as this, like, cool guy who stays hip with the technology. And oh, God. I, I almost get this, like, he's the cool pervy uncle. Like, I don't think he's cool. He thinks he's cool. The thinks he's cool pervy uncle. I No one thinks the pervy uncle's cool. Yeah, the thing about Tony Stark's sexuality is I never feel like he pushes anything on anyone non-consensually. Uh, whereas Obadiah Stane, I absolutely could see if he hadn't gone supervillain and tried to kill Tony Stark, eventually he just would have been me too I agree. And then, so we have this whole setup now 
of of Stain is kind of turning this corner to this more negative side, and Tony's becoming this guy who doesn't want war and doesn't want weapons, and we see him and Pepper have the moment in the lab, which is one of the most defining scenes of the entire series, of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. The, Certainly. We see Pepper get to Tony's heart. <laughs> And, oh, God, the goop, it smells, sure does. Yeah, it's funny because, of course, I was clocking these things because I need receipts. Uh, It's the first time that Tony Stark's heterosexuality comes up in the film in almost 35 minutes. So as much as it was hyper-concentrated into the first 15 minutes of the film, uh, a lot of it has just been action now leading up into his interaction with uh, Pepper Potts, the voice that he heard as he was being tortured uh, over in Afghanistan, which uh, for me is one of the reasons that I loved that scene from the new trailer of him saying it's always her voice. I really feel like, you know, it 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 could have been problematic the way that it's this boss assistant relationship, but I think they've done a really good job of having them be uh, equals and having it be constantly seeded and threaded that they have this affection for each other, which justifies the interaction between the two. I also see that connection between Rhodey and Tony as well. I don't see it as much as I do later on with Don Cheadle, but here I see it, especially in the scenes where they go out of their way to show what a great and competent and capable guy Rhodey is, whether it's when he saves Tony and finds him in the desert, or it's when they show him with his class in the next scene, we get a very strong sense of who Rhodey is and just why he can become War Machine later on. Yeah, there there, there was something that definitely grabbed me in that scene, though, that felt very 2008 when Tony is making the jokes about the time that uh, Rhodey guessed wrong on Manned versus Unmanned. Uh, What was his name? Ivan down at Spring Break. Lovely lady. Uh, That was definitely uh, something that struck me as a joke they would not have made in an Avengers film today. I agree. We really need to stay away from making transphobic jokes. If the punchline of your joke is the person is trans, it's not much of a joke. Though I do think that might be the only huge misstep in terms of that subject matter in this film. Absolutely. I was really pleased to see how little problematic behavior there was from a film that was created a decade ago. I think Rhodey at this point, though, shows a little bit of what you were talking about earlier, where he's very, Tony, you got to get back behind the military-industrial complex that helps run this country into a war-profiteering nation. It's the first time where Rhodey's a little bit off his game, but I think that goes away very quickly. I think the next time we see Rhodey, he does show his allegiance to Tony, especially by helping defend Tony when he's in the suit. Though, let's get to that suit, right? Yeah, you know, one of the most iconic parts of any superhero film, especially in origin, is the creation of the superhero persona and suit and gear. And uh, Tony Stark tooling around in his workshop is definitely one of the uh, most memorable aspects of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think one of the most memorable early characters of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is Dummy. I'm not making a joke. Dummy sets the stage for a number of characters later on. A lot of characters get these sort of non-specific, magical kind of sidekick creatures, almost like Disney princesses with their singing birds. Tony has Jarvis and Dummy and the suit uh, Rocket kind of has Groot. Not that I don't think Groot is is a living creature with a mind, but Groot is. It's definitely how Groot is viewed by the fandom, for sure. And we have 
Scott Lang with his many, many aunts. Yeah, and, you know, to some degree, his kid, a kid is, you know... A kid is like a terrible thing to bring into battle, I think. Yeah, but people keep doing it. Absolutely. We'll get to Spider-Man in a little bit. But back to this appearance of Tony Stark. Once he starts creating the suit, the movie begins to move at an unbelievable clip. Not that I think any point in this movie drags out except the scenes with Stain, but I think this movie really turns a point when he starts creating the suit. There's a definitive moment where you can see the light go on in Tony's shell that tells you, oh, nope, he's powering up Iron Man, and the movie's about to become the superhero epic that the commercials promised... And it comes a good hour and 15 minutes into the film that we finally see the iconic Iron Man suit. That's 75 minutes of lead up. And not just the iconic suit itself, but the iconic depiction of the interior of the Iron Man suit. Yeah, the Tony Stark OS that displays that we get that look on his face with the blue projections and the screens that we can see through onto his face. Absolutely. I think that's really a humongous part of the technological look we get at Iron Man. But Kevo, I have to take a step back. You pointed something out to me that absolutely blew my mind. Talking about the technology of the Marvel Cinematic Universe for a second and talking about the the Tony Stark suit, we also need to talk about some other technology that becomes very iconic. One of the things that we get used to is the way Tony Stark waves his hands back and forth to manipulate his view screens. And Kevo, you pointed something out to me that blew my mind. Oh yeah, from the very beginning of the film, uh, when he's going over his plans with Yin Sen and telling him to put the transparent pieces of paper together to form the whole Iron Man concept, the way he spreads his hands out when he with, with flourish when he flattens out those pages is uh, so uh, reminiscent of his iconic Tony Stark hand gestures when he's using his technology so much about this character's uh, physical mannerisms uh, and the way he interacts with technology like it's just such an extension of his body is so important to the character that fluidity translates to everything he does he is always the coolest person in the room (laughs) i also like that they set up one of the red herring defeats of stain in the iron giant suit Tony has trouble with icing here, and that comes back up in the finale. And while I don't believe that that's necessarily what really does the damage to Stain that can take him out, obviously that comes with the arc reactor blow, I do think that we see a really cool moment where Tony learns from something and learns how to use it on someone else, and there's that iconic moment where he just swoops back into the sky, and he's saved the day, and that becomes such a humongous part of him. It's almost like he got to be Spider-Man for a second, the way he swings (laughs) back up. And then the movie takes its very weird plot gets quick and fast and crazy turn. Tony comes back and he goes to a banquet event. And I say it with such incredulity because this banquet event, it's almost like a re-pilot for this movie. This is the point at which the writers are, if this were a comic series, aware that their run is winding down and they're approaching their final issues. And this is where we see the beginning come full circle. In film terms, the third act. I love bringing Christine Everhart back as the character who gives Tony the one-up that shows him that Stain is the bad guy, because it makes her more than just a tryst interest that's discarded early in the film. This gives her more credibility. Yeah, she's not exactly treated as well as I would love a strong female reporter to be treated in a film, but she's definitely a major character. I believe she's fourth or fifth, no, fifth build in this whole film. That's, that's a pretty significant deal. I agree, especially because the people that are billed above her are significant names. At this point, Tony discovers that Stain is the bad guy, and he has to go to Gomera, and we see the first time 
that we return to that sort of military feel that the movie began on. Tony takes out the Ten Rings and saves a small village. Now, this is where the white savior part is a bit of a problem. It's worth noting specifically Yinsen's village. And that is important to me. Because that does make Yinsen more important again. Especially because he isn't brought up enough throughout the film or throughout the continuity. He is the man that helps him create the first Iron Man suit, and I think that should be remembered. But the more important part to take away from this scene is that when Tony is faced with the opportunity to murder his former captors, he doesn't. Instead, he leaves it to those they've oppressed in their homeland to determine what to do with their former captors. Which is really important. After this sequence, we get the chase scene where Tony has to evade the military on his way home with the help of Rhodey. This is such a fun sequence. This is, I don't know, this is the pod racing of this movie. Yeah, I was going to say it's a little bit silly. Uh, I was really surprised that when they discovered that Tony was clinging to the bottom of the other plane, the pilot didn't say something like, on your belly, it looks like an Iron Man. It felt a little bit, you know, 80s and 90s. But, you know, these, 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 these films are also supposed to be fun. And You know, sometimes a chase scene is just a chase scene. But the chase scene gives us a number of important turning points in the story yet again. When Tony gets home, Pepper walks in on him in the suit, and immediately we know there can't be a question of, will Rhodey or Pepper find out he's Iron Man? They both just found out, and that's that. Yeah, within minutes. So that takes away the question of, will anyone ever know if he's Iron Man at this point in the film? And then we roll along to the hour and 26-minute mark, and oh, well, damn, Stain's the bad guy. (gasps) Shock. It was well-hidden-ish, sort of. I mean, they don't exactly sledgehammer it, but for a film franchise that is occasionally accused of having over-the-top, ridiculous villains, this was... He gets worse as the film goes on. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I do appreciate that they took the burden of being the villain off of the Ten Rings and made the ultimate villain of this film a rich old white man, that's that's significant. And now I want to talk about one of his creepiest, scariest moments because seriously, once he's in the giant doughboy suit, I just can't handle him anymore. But there's this unbelievably tense sequence with Pepper and Stain that is so well acted on both of their parts, genuinely. And it brings us into Coulson, who I think we've managed to not talk about this entire time. Oh, but Coulson. But Coulson. I think Pepper and Stain's scene where she's trying to download the information onto her hard drive was this movie doing their best to say Pepper kicks ass too. Pepper can keep up with Tony. If Pepper couldn't have pulled that sequence off and gotten the proof and escaped, she wouldn't be worthy of being Tony's right hand. And it's so important that at no point does she not want to help Tony because she is afraid for herself. She specifically goes out of her way uh, to say that she's worried about Tony killing himself with all of these actions. Uh, But she herself is such a strong brave character who is willing to do whatever is within her capabilities to to help do the right thing and save the day. And it's something we consistently see from Pepper Potts throughout these films. And it's really amazing. At this point, Pepper is pulled into a whirlwind story 
where Pepper's, I don't know what it is, but the end of Iron Man movies turn into Pepper having a really bad day. That's like the plot of the last hour of any Iron Man movie. Pepper's bad day. And Pepper taking charge, something that I thought was really fascinating watching this film, when she teams up with Agent Coulson, I never feel like it is Pepper being surrounded by bodyguards because she's the girl. No, when they're walking into uh, Stark Industries Labs, Pepper is the one leading the charge. It really more feels like this is Pepper leading a team. You know, they're all experienced fighters so they can take the front on that but i never feel like she is uh her agency is removed in any of these scenes any more than anyone else that stain goes after in the suit so let's talk about somebody that stain goes after outside of the suit i think we both had a problem with how stain ultimately gets his how he ultimately gets his hands on the arc reactor Stain takes out the Ten Rings in Gomera, and he uses this sound technology to paralyze his opponent. Then we see him use it on Tony. But, Kevo, you had some really great points about why that scene was so annoying. You know, I, I try to forgive a lot of things in fiction. You know, it is fun. Uh, but it's the fact that Stain just comes out of nowhere. We see a long pan of Tony sitting by himself in his living room in the empty house and Tony gets a phone call from Pepper and within a second of answering the phone Stain is suddenly behind him and paralyzing him with that sound device. I find it very hard to believe that when Tony at this point knows that Stain is a threat would not have Jarvis on alert and as if Stain could possibly bypass Jarvis to get through security and even if he could how the hell did he run across that wide living room to sneak up did he crawl behind the couch I don't know you know I forgive a lot of things surprise Tony yeah basically I even love the fact that he rips the arc reactor right out of Tony's chest I think that's great except no 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 no. I actually have a problem with this is that some sort of special arc reactor cookie cutter he had made for Tony that perfectly fits the arc reactor and knows how to take it like evidently this is the only one this is the only one it shouldn't be a normal surgical piece that he has readily available did he just like does he have like an in-hand 3D printer because like it literally it's this thing that like perfectly fits the arc reactor hole in Tony's chest and pulls the damn thing right out. Tony didn't use one of those. Tony popped the old one out and popped this one right in. And out of nowhere, Obadiah has a perfectly sized and shaped device to take out of uh, a chest an item that no one can replicate in the entire world. Okay, you know what? I'm going to uh, be completely honest. I think I was just, like, zoned for a second during that, and I believe that he completely used a device, and I also find that silly. I mean the plot and storytelling device of him ripping the arc reactor and using Tony's. I love all of that, but yeah, and I wonder if if that's maybe a Jeff Bridges thing where he was like, I can't just rip it out. I gotta have, like, gloves and stuff. I I don't know. It does feel—everything about that scene feels unnatural, and I can't help noticing that it is such a majorly Jeff Bridges scene when we've talked extensively about the way this film was built on improv. The rest of this movie comes together so very quickly. Coulson and Pepper are working together, and Rhodey is separately working, and everybody is doing their best to find Tony. We get a couple of really lighthearted moments at this point. Uh, Dummy helps save Tony, who has crawled into the lab. Dummy hands Tony the proof that Tony Stark has a heart, the gift from Pepper, which was the original arc reactor that Tony replaced, which we completely forgot to mention. But you've watched the film. It's fine. Obviously, Dummy is the real hero here. Oh, obviously. We also get the fun tease of Rhodey looking at a suit and saying, 
Next time, baby. If only, Terrence Howard, if only. And there's that really fun explosive door moment with Pepper where she, like, hunkers down and covers her ears for the door explosion while all the other S.H.I.E.L.D. agents just look away from it. Yeah, that's great. She has some great comedic timing in this film. That pretty much brings us up to the -the over-the-top end battle where Tony shows up in his failing Iron Man armor to fight Stain, who has his arc reactor. Yeah. It's a lot of kicky, kicky, punchy, punchy, and it kind of goes back and forth a lot. I don't really have too much on the fight sequence. It's... Pretty straightforward, actually. I mean, I I really have some problems with Stain's motivations as a character. He talks about building the company from nothing, and I I always forget until I watch this movie and the sequence at the beginning where they say how Tony Stark graduated from MIT at 17, then went rogue, but comes back at 21 years old to run the company. 21! He's only missing for four years. What was Stain really required to do? In less than half a decade that he's so bitter toward Tony for coming back and running the company that he's clearly competent enough to help, you you know? And I want to know what Stain thinks the endgame of this ploy is going to be. He's running around in a giant robo-suit. What does he think is going to happen here? Yeah, how does he think he can walk this moment back? Ultimately, the battle comes down to Tony needing to find a way to defeat this arc reactor. The only way he can think of is to blow the bigger arc reactor, which takes assistance from Pepper, who's absolutely terrified. But once again, we see that Pepper Potts is the go-to in any crisis. And I can't remember off the top of my head about the climax of Iron Man 2, but I know that Pepper Potts is instrumental in the climax of Iron Man 3. She's such an important part of Tony's process, and I really love that Tony's instinct is to always call Pepper at every turn when he needs help. He doesn't rely on her because she's his only option. He makes her his only option because he relies on her. So while most movies would stop there, with that being the end of the jaw-dropping... Iron Man feels the need to keep going, and that's something that's so true to the character. Tony Stark is a character that will always keep going. Tony Stark is never just going to stop. So at the end of the film, we see Coulson helping Tony prepare for his press conference where he's going to debrief the country on what happened and how he was on a yacht or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're going to use the old comic excuse of it's... Tony's bodyguard. Iron Man is Tony's bodyguard. Which is something that I was never aware of as part of the Iron Man canon until Nico pointed it out to me, which I think is fascinating. Which then leads Tony to give the press conference, and he's going rogue, he's going off book, he's not supposed to take any questions, and Rhodey even tells him to get back on point, and instead, Tony says, truth is, I am Iron Man. And that is the definitive launch point of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in so many ways. And if I recall correctly, I think that was even a Robert Downey Jr. improv. I think that there were there was something different scripted, and he went off book for that take, and Jon Favreau was basically like, fuck yeah, Tony Stark would. I agree. The entire film comes really full circle in that moment, though there is still a little bit more after, where Nick Fury shows up as Samuel L. Jackson, ultimate Nick Fury, and talks about the Avengers Initiative. Yeah, he says the line, you've become part of a bigger universe, you just don't know it yet. And it's unbelievable how true that line out of Nick Fury's mouth really has become over 11 years. Though this is the first of the many, we're going to have to walk back the last tag because it's not exactly going to fit in with our big universe plans. Yeah, we already see a lot of the good seeds and a lot of the bad seeds for what the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to become. 
And speaking of the rest of the Marvel Universe, one of the things we said we were going to set out to do in this podcast is we're going to begin to talk about the next film at the end of the previous episode. What we remember about it, things we're going to be looking out for, sort of uh, what we expect returning to this film with this critical eye gazed toward towards the film. Yeah. So next up would be The Incredible Hulk, uh, starring... Ed Norton had to think for a moment because a few years earlier there had been one by Ang Lee with Eric Bana playing the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, which was pretty much just a nothing film. It was an absolutely nothing film. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just sort of like a The Hulk film. But they managed to boil down all the necessary parts of The Hulk origin, if I'm not mistaken. It's like a four-minute trailer montage or something. What I'm going to be looking out for, though, is I'm going to be looking out for the ways in which it is not Iron Man. To be totally honest with you, because Iron Man was a runaway blockbuster, and Hulk performed. And the ways in which the films aren't connected, uh, these films came out two months apart in 2008, and it was at a time when the Marvel Cinematic Universe wasn't, it, it wasn't even a concept, let alone being named. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how this film, which was never intended to set us down this road will interact with all the things that are going to come later. I'm also going to keep an eye out for the elements that I know show back up in the Marvel Universe. For instance, Ed Norton's Hulk doesn't return, and instead he's played by Mark Ruffalo. But other characters from Hulk, namely Thunderbolt Ross, will return in major capacities. And continue to appear. I think he's appeared at least like two or three times. It's... Absolutely crazy, as well as, uh, I think that's the one that has, um, that's the tag that has Thunderbolt and Iron Man, right? Yeah, Tony Stark as Iron Man. So those are the things I know that we're going to be looking out for. We hope there's a bunch of stuff that you guys are going to be looking at. Oh, you just said Tony Stark as Iron Man. I definitely said Tony Stark as Iron Man, and I wasn't even thinking when I meant Robert Downey Jr., but you know. That's how synonymous those two characters become. So until next time, when we've all already watched The Incredible Hulk starring Ed Norton, This is mcu.html signing off. Peace. Ironic, Tony! Trying to rid the world of weapons! You gave me the best one ever! Pepper! And now... I'm gonna kill you with it! Uh, We've explored what you've asked us, and it seems as though there's a little pickup, actually. Pickup? Yes, the technology actually doesn't exist. So it's it's like it's, 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 the technology. Well you here is the technology. I've asked you to simply make it smaller. Okay, so that's what we're trying to do, but honestly, it's impossible. Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave! With a box of scraps! Okay, so Kevo. Yeah. I was thinking about a way that we could make Iron Man better. Okay. Right? And I was thinking, what if instead Pepper said to Tony, Who's in the suit? Who's in the suit? Oh, who's in the suit? Maybe. <laughs>